On today's episode of the Hop Nerd Podcast, it finally happened. It's been a long time coming, but it finally happened. I sat down with my friend from across the holler, from where I'm originally from in Virginia, over in West Virginia, the awesome, the amazing Steve Scott. Here we go. To another episode of the Hop Nerd Podcast. I am your host, Sam Goodman, the Hop Nerd LLC. Make sure you head over to the website www.thehopnerd.com for fundamentals, learning teams, support, and so much more. Send us an email, thehopnerd at gmail.com, and be sure to follow along with us on all things social media at the Hop Nerd or at Sam Goodman. Welcome to today's episode. I know I've got a, some technical glitches happening, but we are recording, so um, fingers crossed, everything <laughs> everything works out on the recording side of things. <laughs> I made the mistake, so I made the mistake of 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 going and getting a fancy pants computer because I'd never had a fancy pants computer, right? <laughs> I've always lived off of kind of the the office special, you know. The plastic case Dell, you know, and that yeah. the, the good old trusty, right? I always lived off the good old trusty computer. It's the, uh, you know, it's the, uh, I don't know if you're a, a Ford or a Chevy guy, but either one, insert that word there, right? <laughs> I have to throw Toyota into that mix nowadays because there's a lot of folks that are Toyota folks now. Yeah. <laughs> but insert one of those brands, right? Uh, it's always like the old trusty. It just runs and runs and runs and runs and runs and runs. With all the video and all the podcast stuff, I was pushing it to its limits. So I, I bought, at least for me, it was a fancy pants computer. I tell my computer friends what I got, and they're like, oh, that's not fancy at all. <laughs> um, but they know no limit to what their level of fancy is when it comes to computer. But I thought it would help, I guess, is where I'm going with this. Yeah. And uh, it does until it doesn't. Yeah. And when it doesn't, it really doesn't. Right. <laughs> There's no, there's no, it's either working great or it's not working at all. There's no in between. Yeah. I, I can't limp it through like I could with maybe my, my, my older computers. I, I finally about, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago, I made the switch to everything Apple. And uh, uh, yeah, I need to. Best move I'd made. Um, I mean, I, I was forced with, with uh, Microsoft stuff when I was working for Alcoa. Yeah. But I, I've had an iPad and an iPhone for years, which Same. I really like. And when I uh, I bought a uh, a Mac Mini desktop, oh yeah, 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 got a got a couple big monitors, and it's I just love it. Yeah, I, I love the way everything integrates seamlessly. So that's what I need. Now I've got have... a I've got a small the smallest MacBook Air you could get is my travel computer and. Um, Oh, you're speaking my language, man. That's you were reading my mind because that's the first thing I was thinking this morning. I'm sitting there and I'm looking because you know the last laptop that I bought, and I've I've I'm like I said, I'm not a I'm not a huge tech person. I get by, right? I'm fine. <laughs> like, don't get me wrong, operational side, I've got it. I can figure it out. But I'm not like a computer mechanic, right? Yeah. But this, I bought this HP something. It's the touch screen, but I got it because it had a big monitor. I'm like, this is gonna be awesome because it has a big monitor. It was like an aluminum case on it. It was kind of cool. <laughs> you know, it converts over to where you can flip it over and turn it into kind of like a tablet if you want uh -huh. to, you know, kind of all that stuff. 
At some point, instead of buying a new computer, because it started doing this thing where the fans were starting to fail in it. So I'm like, I'm going to figure out how to replace this. Can't be that hard. <laughs> so I did it. I fixed it. It was fine. It wasn't a big deal. But now I wish that I would have broken it, right? Because it's so heavy. Yeah. It's like a 17-inch monitor on top. <laughs> I don't need this. It doesn't fit on the plane trays. <laughs> that was it, the, it, the last – now, the, the computer before the last one I had for Alcoa was like a 15-inch a mm-hmm. heavy as lead Lenovo computer and and – when I, when it was time to get that one replaced, I, I told my boss, I said, look, I am not accepting a direct replacement. If you give me another 15 inch laptop, I'm just going to leave it at home and I'll do what I can on my phone. I'm not going to carry yeah. it around. <laughs> well, I've, I've seen folks that have been using just the iPad too now, which is kind of wild to me, you know, that as far as, you know, going out doing, doing workshops and doing stuff like that, I bumped into folks that are just using iPad stuff. I, I don't know that I can quite get there yet. So but a I, MacBook Air, I could definitely, I could definitely do that. You're speaking. I on bought, me. I bought an iPad Pro not long after I retired, intending to use that as my laptop. And mm-hmm. there's just some things it does not do well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what I'm um, saying. Yeah, it's a little bit glitchy trying to present PowerPoint. Um, and I still use PowerPoint because I, I usually give my clients a copy of the presentation, yep. and that's the most common software. Yeah. Um. It's a little bit glitchy trying to present PowerPoint and, you know, stuff like adding an attachment to an email is really hard on a on a iPad. And it, it doesn't have to be. It's just the way yeah. the thing's set up. It, it's so, like trying to do it on your phone, right? I mean, it's kind of the, yeah, you're yeah. the same thing with an iPhone, right? Of like trying yep. to, trying to add my, attachments. My MacBook works exactly the same way my desktop does and yeah, everything see. does what it's supposed to. And. I like the integration. I'm I'm gonna have to go for it at some point. I just yeah. haven't. I just haven't. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, they're not they're not cheap, but it's a yeah. it's a good investment. Yeah. Well, and that's where you know I was looking at that, and and I ended up getting an Alienware, like a gaming computer, yep. right? So and playing with it with video stuff and podcast stuff, and it works so much better when I'm doing. Uh, video editing is a monster. Right? Oh, I'm sure. I, I, I didn't realize how much of a monster that, even just like basic, like running some of those Adobe programs, like Adobe Premiere Pro and some of those yep. things that a lot of people use for video stuff. I'm by no means like an expert at it, but if you're if you're not using something that has some horsepower in it, it makes right. it like a day-long process. So my whole thought was, is how do I make this suck less? Because this <laughs> takes, I can't afford to spend an entire day. Just sit there mind-numbingly editing videos because the computer crashes every five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but, yep. and I, I like it. Don't get me wrong. It's a great computer. I like it. But I wish I would have went, <laughs> went went the Mac route. <laughs> I'm thinking I wish I would have went the Mac route. <laughs> yeah, people, and, and I don't I don't know anything about editing video, but people that I know that do a lot of it um, tend to like Macs a whole lot better than uh, Microsoft-based yeah, yeah, I, that's I've I've heard that a bit as well, you know. And a lot of what I've done was more on the audio side of stuff. And Mac kind of had a good reputation there too. Yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll be completely transparent and tell you that I cheaped out a little bit <laughs> when I compared the price tags between the two. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to go with this one. This one seems like it does <laughs> does what I need it to do. <laughs> and the other the other thing with the other thing with Macs is they'll they'll advertise a price. Mm-hmm. But that's the bare bones minimum capability 
yeah mop if well, you want if you want a decent amount of memory you're going to pay through the nose for mm-hmm. it if you want a bigger hard drive you're going to pay through the nose for it and well, they, they follow that car lot model right i mean yeah they're, they're yeah. going to show you you, know, you can get this beautiful pickup truck for twenty five thousand dollars right. right off the lot brand new if you just come on in and talk to us they know once they get you to that desk but of course you're going to want the leather seats. But wouldn't you want the leather seats and the air conditioning, um, you know, heated you a, seat and remote start? And- you have a front camera on this model? Yeah, it's only $8,000. Just it's, you, you won't even notice it in the price. Yep. <laughs> but all that stuff's great, right? I mean, that's that's, that's why you wanted this because it, it's usually pretty handy. <laughs> so my, uh, my youngest is... Um, very, very, very good with computers. Mm-hmm. And so I asked her um, when I was getting this one, she knows the kind of stuff I do. I said, what, what should I add? And she just said, just add extra memory. Yeah. That's all you need. It's uh, you can, you can get a, a SSD or a, an external hard drive to store your stuff on. It's cheaper than upgrading from Apple, but get extra memory. That's what I found too. Uh, you know, running, trying to run those programs, it's all memory stuff. And again, I'm not, yeah. I, I know people out there because we're doing the podcast, just so you know. <laughs> people, I'll cut this in at some point. You warned me that it was recording, so I figured <laughs> this is this is how we do it. People, people out there that would listen to this and say, "Bunch of idiots trying to talk about computers," but this is my level of computer knowledge, right? I just know that more memory equals more better. Yeah, <laughs> so, especially when you're trying to run some of those programs. Those things, because that's what that's what gets me. But again, I, I, looking back on it now, a bit of reflection, right? I'm like, well, I could have done the same thing. I could have just went with a, a MacBook Mini, something along those lines, just jacked the memory through the roof and probably avoided a lot of the little side glitches that I get, like we were experiencing this morning. <laughs> could have avoided yeah. some of those side glitches. <laughs> well, what's, what's funny is, is on, my, on my MacBook, I bought the bare bones model. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I do all my work on this desktop. Yeah. Um, I'm the similar. only thing I use the MacBook for is when I'm presenting, when I'm out with a client presenting and to do email and, yep. you know, internet stuff and things like that. So I just bought the cheapest 13 inch MacBook I could buy. Um, I've got a one terabyte external hard drive that, that, uh, works real well with it and it does everything I want to do. Yeah, see, that's yeah, that's 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 kind of the same model that I follow. Yeah. I end up doing everything here, any prep work, any social media stuff, any video stuff, any any of the, all the little things that I tend to dabble in, and then the laptop is just for that. It's yep. it's when that's it's when I, I for. it's when I want to it's when I want to sit on the couch and send emails, and when I'm sitting in a plane <laughs> or yep. you know sitting there hanging out with some clients. It's mostly just for presentations, workshops. And the little bit of stuff that you end up suckered into doing while you're sitting in a hotel room. Yeah, I, I write a report, and I, you know, or you know, a proposal or something like that. But none mm-hmm. of that's memory intensive, so um, it's, yeah. it does everything I want it to do on the road. Well, I'm going to end up copycatting you at some point. I'll let you know how it works out <laughs> when I get there. But uh, so if it all goes horribly wrong, Steve, I'm going to blame you. You can blame so me. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so. I told you that we just kind of start rolling with this thing. So we're into it. So for all anybody right. out there that was bored with any of that, you now know that you could have fast forwarded through all that if you wanted to. <laughs> um, but tell everybody out there who you are, what you do, those kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, I'm Steve Scott. I do consulting in human and organizational performance. Um, 
And when I talk about human and organizational performance, I, I wrap a bunch of stuff into that. Um, that. That's new view and SIF prevention and learning teams and critical risk management, I think all neatly mesh together in in one model that I want people to, you know, learn and understand. Um, I've been doing this for just over four years. Prior to that, I worked for Alcoa for 30 years, a big uh, mining metals company. Um, I started out as an hourly operator and ended up as the global director of human performance and continuous improvement. So I, it, it, I kind of have a unique opportunity to see a big manufacturing company literally from every level, from the shop floor to the executive suite. And um, that's, that's given me a lot of, uh, a, a lot of good um, experience to pull from when I'm talking to people about how to integrate hop. Yeah. So that's kind of yeah. what I do. That's very cool. So prior to uh, Alcoa, so you're in West Virginia, right? Are you born, born and raised West Virginian? No, yeah, I was actually born in Baltimore, Maryland, but okay. I've lived here. I've lived here since 1980, so it's uh, been here a good long time. That's it. That's that's more than a minute. I, was, I always I always pick back and forth with you, right? Because everybody out there knows I'm I'm from Virginia, but barely. So I tell people that I'm barely from Virginia. I'm just right across the line from you guys. I think the part of Virginia that I'm from, I think we probably claim West Virginia way more than we claim anything <laughs> north of us. <laughs> In, in Virginia, right? So, uh, yeah, I was I was born in Martinsburg, and then raised, once, yeah, yeah, born in Martinsburg, barely, right? And then raised, uh, kind of spent the the my my younger my more formative years, uh, right outside of a little town called Richlands, Virginia. Okay. So right in Richlands, actually right outside into the county. So we didn't live in the town. We lived out in the county, kind of out in the sticks in a little place called Pounding Mill, which is kind of right in between Richlands and Tazewell, Bluefield. You're sure you know Bluefield, Virginia, West Virginia, right? Kind of right there. So I was probably about 45 minutes from Bluefield, about somewhere right around there. All right. So I, to put that in a bit of perspective, anytime that we wanted to uh, do any type of mall level shopping, like we didn't have a mall out that. We would go to Mercer County. We'd go to Mercer County to the Mercer Mall. <laughs> so I so I was born in Baltimore. I lived in Baltimore and then outside of Washington in Prince George's County, Maryland, for until I was about 10 years old. And then we moved to Marion, Virginia. I know Marion. I know Marion very in well. Yeah. Southwestern corner of Virginia. So you yep. talk about culture shock. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, Marion was a is a little tiny town up in the up in the hills of Virginia, and we lived similar to you. We lived about three miles outside of town. Yeah. Um, and same thing. If we wanted to go to a mall, we had to drive forty miles to Bristol. Yeah. To go I, to a mall. So I know I know the Bristol Mall. The Bristol Mall's no more. It's gone. Oh, really? Yeah. So I went back. I went back not that long ago, and uh, my my mom's still kicking. She lives there and still in Pounding Mill, Virginia. And I went back to visit her, and so. She's um I won't I won't put an age on it because I, I enjoy it too, but she really enjoys a good casino. <laughs> but she she loves a good slot machine, right? So she um I was going back and I, I went to spend some time with her and she was telling me, yeah, they built this new hard rock casino, but they built it where Bristol Mall used to be. Really? So Bristol Mall is no more. It's gone. I can't picture Bristol having a hard rock casino. Well, me either. 
So there was, so they, they did two things with that property, two things I would have never expected in Bristol. Now I'll say that, but I think that I'm trying to remember if the Bristol mall is on the Virginia side or the Tennessee side. I don't remember. I don't remember. Someone out, someone else out there can fact check me. So I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to talk too much crap about Virginia or Tennessee. Um, love both of those places, <laughs> but one of the, one side or the other, um, there it's a pretty conservative region, right? It's a very yes. conservative region. Um, there's a lot of beautiful things that come along with that. There's a lot of things that sometimes come along with that, like usually not having casinos, weird yeah. laws around alcohol consumption and restaurants, yep. <laughs> some, of, some of those basic things that still pretty alive and well in some of those counties. Right. So when I heard they had the casino, I was shocked. But <laughs> what I was more shocked about was this is that the other half of that property, they turned into, a like an industrial scale marijuana and CBD processing center. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, that doesn't seem to fit. <laughs> it doesn't, okay. right? So I keep I keep throwing this prediction out here, and I, I I might eat my words later on. But as you know, at that region in particular, you know, there's one industry, and it is coal, or it has been coal. You know, prior to that, it was heavily agricultural, mostly in the tobacco world. Yep. You know, some of my earliest memories of any level of work was sitting on the back of a planter a homemade planter dropping little tobacco plants into <laughs> you know some family farms uh, imagine that right yeah <laughs> good times but with all the fertile land that's there and with kind of the moves in some of that some of those laws and some of those regulations i foresee that agriculture will probably be their next big thing that was a uh uh that was definitely a cash crop from that region though maybe a black market cash crop for many yeah. years yeah <laughs> The ground is fertile and will grow anything you put in it. <laughs> yeah, so where I was at, you could go you could go one direction, you'd go towards Bluefield, West Virginia, you could touch over into West Virginia there, or you go the other direction across the mountain and you'll drop down into the world famous McDowell County, West Virginia. So a yeah. lot of my a lot of my family was from Jolo. If you're familiar with Jolo, West Virginia, I've heard of it. Right yeah. down into McDowell County. They became famous. Uh, not my family in particular, but the region for a particular church that was there <laughs> that made it onto several different documentaries that involved some snakes. <laughs> I love I, I, for anyone out there listening. I'm I'm reminiscing about this region because I love it so much. It's so it's just beautiful and it's it's quirky and cool and amazing and all those different things. Jolo is in particular very quirky and cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 like I said, when I, when I moved to Marion, it was a huge culture shock, but yeah. I, I loved it. Um, I, I don't ever want to live in a big city again. I, I like it where I'm at now. Cause I'm in a, right now I'm in the Eastern panhandle of West Virginia. Yeah. So, um, nice not far from Harper's Ferry. Yeah. So, um, it's a rural County. There's only about 50,000 people in the whole County. And I, but I'm, 44 minute or 44 miles from Dulles airport. I can be in Washington, DC in a little over an hour if I want to. Yeah. Um, so I'm close to stuff, but um, I'm still in a, still feels kind of like a, a small town rural area. So that's, yeah, that's I, one of the things I like about the area. I made that mistake. Right. So I, I did, I did a bit of the opposite in the sense that, you know, I was leaving the, uh, um, I was leaving the mountains. Right. And I was coming out here. You moved and to I, the I, desert. Right. And I, I, I've done, I've done a lot of traveling, but I, when I was coming out here, I, I didn't have plans of putting down roots because it was a temporary assignment, a temporary assignment that brought me to <laughs> 15 years later. Right. You know, we know how those temporary assignments goes when you're uh -huh. a large corporation. Right. 
And so I was coming out here with them and they're like, yeah, just go for a few weeks. It'll be fun. You'll love it. That's great. And then a month or two goes by and they're like, you might want to get, you know, a small apartment. It's fine. Cause we might keep you there for a few more months. And then a couple of years later, like, yeah, you're never leaving by the way. <laughs> just go ahead and buy a house. But I did the opposite. Right. So I was leaving the mountains. I, here I am, you know, almost all of my travel. I, I did a lot of it, but it was almost exclusively on that side of the Mississippi. Right. Yeah. And through a lot of the, just work, you know, the work that I did, I was traveling all over the place, but I never really had the opportunity to put down roots. And then, so once I was coming out here, I'm like, you know what? Kill Billy me. Right. I'm like, screw that. I'm going to go live in the middle of a city. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I realized that there's a reason why hillbillies don't live in the middle of the city. Yeah. So slowly, ever since then, about I lived in the middle of downtown Phoenix up until about the the when when covid really hit we were kind of stuck in downtown mm. that's when it really hit me i was like i need space yeah i was already kind of thinking it but that really did it for me so slowly since then i've been slowly like stepping stone farther out into the desert <laughs> it's a little at a time i'm not quite as far out as i want to be i'm i'm in a little bit of a uh, just a small community out in maricopa county so i'm i'm not actually inside of a city limits which is you know, back to my hillbilly roots. I like being in the county. I don't want to live in the town, but I'm still not quite far enough. I want to get yeah. just a little bit farther out where I, I you know, I, I like the situation. I love my neighbors. Don't get me wrong, but I like the situation where I don't have to see them unless I want to. Right. <laughs> That's kind of the general rule of thumb. So what, with, with all that out of the way, what led you towards human and organizational performance? Um, drew you into wow, talk ideas. about a yeah. Um, uh, I took a really torturous route, so um, I was actually in a, in a continuous improvement role for Alcoa. I was the um, continuous improvement manager for a business that we called U.S. Primary Products. It was eight aluminum smelters and a refinery in, uh, in the U.S. that I was supporting for continuous improvement work. And at the time, Alcoa was just dipping their toe into, at the, we called it human performance mm-hmm. um, at the time. And we were using Rob Fisher yep. to help us with that. And I heard about it. And um, so I asked my boss, I said, hey, can I, can I go to this training next time they have one? He said, sure. And um, it just clicked. What, what's, what's interesting is when I worked in a plant, I spent most of my time in a plant in a part of the plant we call the cast house, which is in a smelter. That's kind of the end of the process. We took molten aluminum and cast it into ingots, which we then cut and packaged and shipped to customers. So I dealt with a lot of quality issues in that job. Um, And when I'm sitting there listening to Rob talk about how to identify, how to recognize, how to manage error-likely situations, how to build resilient systems, how to look for system weaknesses instead of blaming the the, the worker. I wasn't even thinking about safety. I was thinking about quality. Yeah. I'm thinking about, man, if, if we could reduce the number of errors that cause us to produce bad products and ship them to customers and, and you know, build resilience into our system so that we, we make fewer bad products, Wow, is that worth a time of money, a, a, a ton of time and money and reputational yeah. damage and all those other things we cared about? So it, it just immediately clicked with me. Yeah. And um I started 
spending more and more time trying to learn everything I could about it. So then I got started asked to share it with others. And I, I, you know, I got certified by Rob to do some of the teaching, some of the training. And before long, I was spending the majority of my time on human and organizational performance and, yep. and, and a whole lot less on continuous improvement. So at some point, I got kind of uh, dragged kicking and screaming into the safety organization. And um, best thing that ever happened to me. You yeah. know, I, I I never thought that's where I would end up. I, I liked operations. I liked manufacturing. Um, but I, I, I got pulled into that organization. I had a fantastic boss, uh, Laurie Shelby, who's now the, the HSVP at Tesla. Um, uh-huh. And... Um, through a bunch of different organizational changes and moves, um, you know, Laurie got promoted and she kept dragging me along with her. So I, yeah. I, I ended up with a corporate role uh, leading human and organizational performance across Alcoa. And um, again, it, it's it's the the most rewarding work I've ever done was yeah. was working on human and organizational performance for the safety organization um, yeah. because it was. A lot of times, you know this. A lot of times, the 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 we're here from the corporate safety organization to help you <laughs> is not words anybody wants to hear, right? That right. we yeah. get a reputation of being safety cops. That, that's that's the know. day when when people end up, you know, we always called it the use of strategic PTO. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> the strategic They're use. Just of coming up, find a reason not to be there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I've got a yeah. I'm going on vacation that day, and just let you know. I'm... <laughs> so, so what was what was rewarding for me was being asked to yeah. come to plants, right? Come help us with this, come help us with this. Um, um, you know, so I, I, I'd never got the feeling that, um, when they, when they heard I was coming to visit that it was a, Oh shit, Steve's coming. Right. Um, I, most of the time it was, it was them asking me, Hey, can you come help us with this? Can you come yeah. and do some training on that? And, and, um, so it was, it was really, really, um, it was professionally, it was personally rewarding yeah. and it just, everything about human and organizational performance made so much sense to me. Yeah. Um, because when I, when I was a, when I was a superintendent in the cast house, I was the guy when something bad happened, we made a bad product or somebody got hurt or we damaged a piece of equipment. Um, I looked into it up to the point where somebody didn't do what they were supposed to do. And then I punished that person. Mm. And I was recognized for doing that. I was rewarded for doing that. Yeah. I was seen at being really good at, you know, I don't, I try not to even use the words anymore, but holding people accountable. You took right? it super seriously. Yes. Right. And yeah. I can look back now and think of some very, a whole bunch of very specific examples where people wouldn't tell me what happened or people lied mm-hmm. to me or people didn't tell me the whole truth. And I, either I never figured it out or I spent hours and hours trying to figure it out because I created a culture where people wouldn't tell me, yeah. um, that that was something I did. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it just made so much more sense to me. The more I got into it, the more I learned about it, the more my thinking about hop, you know, evolved over time um, that, you know, creating a culture where, you know, we want to know what happened to the operators. We want to know yeah. what they did and why they did it, and why it made sense to them, not so that we can blame and punish them, but so that we can learn from that. Yeah. And, and, you know, 
improve our process, put more checks and balances in the system, build in resiliency, all those all those other things that are that are so much more effective rather than blaming the worker. So, you know, just everything about it made a whole lot of sense to me. Um, It was a fantastic opportunity. I got to be in that global role for Alcoa for about the last four years I was there and um, really set me up to do what I'm doing now. So, yeah. Yeah, I love that. You know, there's there's a few things there that really stand out to me. Um, the first is always, and I mentioned this to so, so many folks that I've talked to through this podcast, everyone that I talk to that's found their way into Hop or, as you said, I'm, I'm a, I've used Hop in the same frame as you do. I use it to usually pull in safety differently in HRO and traditional H, some more of the traditional HP tools, all those things that we know work really well together. <laughs> Yep. When used well through through that set of principles, right? When we apply those principles at the beginning, when we pull all those kind of with those beliefs and assumptions, and then all those different tools pulled in, right? I think I think we make something pretty magical happen there when we start with those. And I'm with you. I think that's there. But it's always anybody that's found their way into this world, safety, quality, hop, that's doing any of those things differently. It's always such a weird and winding path. That brings us to it, right? I've I've yet to sit down and I'll I spend a lot of time with my with my safety fam out there with a lot of my safety friends. And even just thinking back to those folks on this podcast are just friends that I have here locally or around the world that I just keep tabs on, just chat with all the time. No one's story is the same. I've yet to come across right. somebody that's like, yep, you know, I got out of high school and I just had this dream of being in safety and health or being a, you know, working in organizational <laughs> performance or HP and you know, I just boom, 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 went right into it. And it's never, right? At least not yet. I mean, I, we're, we're probably on the verge of that being some of the story now that, you know, these ideas are starting to become a little bit a little bit more saturated, which is good. I think that's a good thing. But it's yeah. always such, such a winding path. There's a thing that stood out to me that, that I really resonated, really resonates deeply with me. As you said, when you, people don't dread seeing you. Yeah, that was a huge shift for me personally because in the roles that I worked in, I always worked in as as environmental health and safety managerial kind of roles, mm-hmm. right? So it was usually me, and then I had safety folks that worked with me, specialists and consultants and techs and kind of all that different stuff, industrial hygiene folks and kind of all those different things. And most of my background is in the utility space and commercial nuclear generation, and then coal and natural gas mostly. Uh, but it was in those kind of roles. So I, I, exactly what you said when we would say, don't worry, we're coming. People would go, oh, shit. <laughs> right? it, it, yep. it wasn't like, thank God, safety's coming to help. It was, oh, no. Can you just let us figure this out and we'll tell you what we figured out? Right? It was, it was more, of that, more of that conversation. So there was a big shift for me personally. That's why it resonates so much. When things started to change and I found myself in a similar position, um, as I kind of discovered what what really the end for me. So I was exposed to HP stuff. And then obviously the original INPO 5 principles way back when in the commercial nuclear generation world, and then HP tool use and kind of all those different things. Obviously the utility world kind of grabbed those things up from yep. their nuclear brethren and spread them throughout their utilities pretty fast. That's another side rant, side story that we can chat about if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's about, Rob Fisher's background. So absolutely. Well, yeah. and it's it's it's. I'll, okay, I'll side I'll side rant for just a second now because this is what I do. Um, <laughs> a lot of the utilities that I spent time with, they took the tools and abandoned the principles. Yes. Right. So, and, 
<laughs> they said, and there was great. There was some of that with Alcoa. <laughs> yeah, they took the tools. They said, yeah, but the tools, yeah, we don't need the principal part. The tools, we just tell people to use these tools, and if they use them good enough, then bad things won't happen. Then and nobody will make mistakes, and we missing, won't have anything bad. Yeah, missing yeah. the point, <laughs> right? So, okay, side side rant over. <laughs> go go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> no, no. Let me layer this on top of it. So, um, if you don't know anything else about Alcoa, you might have heard of a guy named Paul O'Neill. Mm-hmm. Paul O'Neill became CEO of Alcoa in 1987, and he was kind of like a wild card. Nobody thought he was going to be the guy who was named. Yeah. Um, and so it was kind of surprising when he was named as the next CEO. And when he was introduced to the investors, the first words out of his mouth were, I want to talk to you about worker safety. And it shocked the room. Mm. Um, there were actually people in the room that said they got up, walked out to the nearest phone and called their office and said, you need to sell Alcoa because this guy's going to run it into the ground. Um, Paul O'Neill gets all the credit for making safety a core value of Alcoa. Yeah. But Paul O'Neill, till the day he died, was still preaching the gospel of zero, that every accident is preventable. The only goal that matters is zero. Um, We need to be a zero harm workplace. And that was deeply, deeply, deeply embedded into the DNA of Alcoa. Yeah. Even when we moved into HP, so we were we were still looking at HP kind of as something to help us get to zero, and we were still measuring safety the traditional way by looking at lagging indicators. So, you know, we did this for a few years, and then we had this huge string of really bad events. Yeah, and when you get to that place. You've always got a choice. You can keep doing the same stuff harder, or you can do something different. Mm-hmm. And um, my boss at the time, Laurie Shelby, she said, you know, we're not just going to do the same stuff harder. Um, let's quit pretending we're going to prevent every incident from occurring. And let's assume that stuff's going to happen and focus on protecting the people when it does. Yeah. So let's forget about zero. Let's focus on making sure we don't seriously injure or kill somebody. And yeah. that's where we got into critical risk management. And mm-hmm. it just it just fits so well with everything we talk about in HOP. If you believe that error is normal, you can't convince yourself you're not going to have incidents. Right. So yeah. you've got to then you've got to then be prepared to say, okay, how do I protect people when these incidents occur? If you define safety as the presence of capacity. How do you create and manage capacity? Well, that's what critical mm-hmm. risk management is all about, right? So, exactly. you know, that that shift in Alcoa was a really big deal. Um, when we first started talking about it, I went around to a bunch of different plants and had just the informal meetings with lead teams talking about, you know, stop asking if and start asking when. And you could just see this big sigh of relief. Yeah. And I had I had some plant managers and people in roles like that say, you know, it's about time somebody acknowledged <laughs> that we're not perfect and we're never going to be. And, you know, chewing my ass every time I call the boss and telling him we had an incident is not going to prevent the next incident. No. So it might feel really good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that that change was was really, really difficult yeah. for Alcoa. But once we once we made that change. 
oh my goodness, did a whole lot of stuff happen. <laughs> we started yeah. hearing about more mm. things. We started yes. getting more things reported. It, you know, it scared the hell out of our board of directors mm. because stuff was getting reported that they hadn't heard about before. But we're trending upwards. We're yeah, trending. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> You know, we put this huge push out to to report PCIF events, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know, we tried to make it as easy as possible to do it. Tried to take away the the administrative burden. Worked with leaders to talk about how they responded when they heard about CIF events, and so we got a flood yeah. of yeah. PCIF events. And you know, we had to caution people: don't panic. This is nothing new. What's new is that they're telling us about it, which yeah. is a good thing. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of neat to see that or to experience that um, in an organization that was so fixated with the idea that zero is the only result that matters. Yeah, no, I love that. That's yeah, that's that's such a shift, and it it ties right back into the conversation, right, where we were kind of talking about this shift in the way people view viewed us. Yeah, and, and and viewed kind of those really support groups. I mean, we're in a lot of our roles. My roles were always support roles, right? I was supporting operations, yep. and I always viewed it as that way. As I'm here to support you in trying to get work done safely, efficiently, quality, and all those different things, right? I'm here to support you. I'm not here to beat you, bash you, judge you, all those different things. I'm on your team. <laughs> like I'm, I'm on I'm on your side. <laughs> Right. Kind of that thing. But it 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 pulls me back to this thought that and because the zero thing, and I, I promise I'm rambling a little bit, but I've got a few thoughts bouncing around in my head after hearing that. <laughs> such a good, good conversation. It pulls me back, you know, to this this zero idea. And especially when I hear folks that are far, far, far away from the work, because you never hear zero is possible once you get close to the sharp end. Oh, you yeah. Never, you never hear that. You might hear that if they are forced to say it. Right, a frontline leader that is beaten into saying, yes, zero is achievable, we shall get, yeah, maybe. But I mean, they're beaten, they're tarred, they're feathered. If they don't, they're labeled as uncaring if they don't say that zero is possible, if they're not preaching that to their crews. So you got to go up, up, up through the organization, and especially in those kind of really nice conference rooms, the really nice ones. We know the really nice ones, you know, the wood paneling on the walls. You know you're in the executive conference room if it's got the wood paneling and the fancy, the big fancy table. Right, the nice chairs. Lots, lots of aluminum trim if it's alcohol. <laughs> a lot of aluminum trim. Yeah. <laughs> I've been around a bunch of steel mills and stuff like that too. And they have some cool tables. They make yeah. some cool tables. <laughs> but when I hear that, I always want to ask those folks. And I, I don't mean it. I do mean it a little tongue in cheek. I do mean it a little pointed because I think there's a little value in that sometimes. You got to push people to think differently a little bit sometimes. Push them outside of their comfort zone a little bit. But I always like to ask those folks, especially at that level, like, have you really been out and walked around in your operations? And you're going to tell me that no bumps, no scrapes, right. nothing. Like, you know what you guys do for a living, right? Like, have you seen the amazing, incredibly dangerous work that your people do for a living each and every day, right? The fact that you have as few bumps, scrapes, and the fact that you have as few fatalities a lot of times in some of these organizations is amazing right. to me. Right. So it, it, to me, it goes to that point of exactly what you were saying. I love critical risk management and the, the ideas behind critical risk management. And I love pulling those things together because I, I've, I've, and I'm sure you've heard uh, the Toddster. We've heard Todd talk about this a little bit. It's that broke arm versus dead conversation. 
Yeah. Right. Reducing that to a level like you, you're not going to, you're not going to eliminate the opportunity for someone to break their arm. But if we can take that severity from dead to broke arm, that's a pretty good jump in our world. We had a, we had an event at an Alcoa plant where a, uh, a contractor was working about 40 feet up on a scaffold mm. on the outside of a, a big tank. And he stepped on a scaffold board and the board broke. Mm. He's wearing a harness, lanyard, attached to an anchor point. He fell, but when he fell, he swung and hit the side of the tank. Yep. And he did something like uh, dislocate a shoulder. Yeah. And we had to, as, as soon as I heard that, I said, okay, what we need to do is we need to treat this as a win. A we need to treat this as, this is a guy that would have died had he not been using the control that we asked him to use, that we provided for him, that we, yeah. you know, that we mandated, he used the control that we gave him and it worked. Yeah. Let's celebrate that. Yeah. And then well, let's go learn everything we can about that event so that we can get better. Absolutely. But let's it, celebrate the fact that this was, this is a win. And um, the, even to the other side of that, because I know, you know, as, as, Industrial safety folks, usually in organizations, coming, you know, be that being my bread and butter for many years, you know, of course, we're going to go down that path of like, well, you know, they tied off a little bit too far away from them and it resulted in a swing fall and we could have, could have totally avoided this. But, 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 but where I'm going with this is this even with air, maybe I made the air of pushing my lanyard or getting a little bit too far away from my tie off point, the control still worked. Yes. <laughs> Even though I, I had the harness on, win number one, I was too far away. Maybe made a little bit of a mistake, swung in something, dislocated my shoulder, but the control still worked. Right. Because harnesses aren't designed to keep us from dislocating our shoulders. They're designed yeah. to keep us from going splat. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So that's there's so many wins to unpack in that. But if we go back to that zero mindset and say, well, should have never fell in the first place. That's right. But again, I, I the lunatic that I am when I argue with some of these folks, then why do we wear harnesses to begin with if people just won't fall? Right. If I just pay enough attention and, and would never fall, there's the harn the harness industry wouldn't be a multi-billion dollar. Just tell them go out there and be careful. Be safe. <laughs> just be safe, right? Yeah. <laughs> pay enough attention, don't die. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to bring that back into what we we're talking about is that I found myself in a similar position where I became a de facto hop person for the organizations that I was working in. Uh, more recently, in the the last utility that I worked for directly, kind of became the de facto hot person. I kept my industrial safety title because title change always comes with other perks that organizations usually don't want to give, <laughs> at least in the utility world, which was cool with me. I got to do the the work that I wanted to do. I got to do good work and do it for the right reasons, but you become that de facto hot person. And as you start to show up, people, it's not even you showing up. I found that people were calling me. Yeah. People were saying, hey. We've got some really cool work going on, and we know that you're a nerd about learning about work. You want to come out and check this out? Like, do you like it? And, and, and uh, from a personal note, badass, just generally speaking, because when someone says, Hey, we're going up in this helicopter, we're going to do some work out. You, you want to go? I'm like, yeah, I want to go. Yeah, but just right. from an organizational learning standpoint, to get to see work that most people we know as an organization is happening. But then to have crews invite you out to see work that most folks from the from the the tower far far away have never ventured out to see, yeah, is phenomenal, and just to learn in real time with them being there and to be invited there, not forced to be there, 
is such an interesting dynamic as compared to what I know many of us have been used to in the past. But it all started with exactly what you were saying, and it's similar to Alcoa. It, it, that shift, they started to see that, wait a second, they're curious. They're not judgmental. Yeah. They're curious. They, they want to help. They're not here to beat and punish. That's how we used to do things. We're not doing things like that anymore. We remember those things. We remember those days, but yeah. we're not doing that anymore. Right. It, it's phenomenal. Right. And another piece that was kind of, that kind of stood out to me was that every person that I've seen go down this path, long winding road, all the changes that we see along the way personally in our professions, but also the level of passion of the folks that do this stuff and do it well and do it well over a long haul. You, when, when you hear these principles, you, you talked about that click moment. Yeah. Everyone that I know that ends up in this world, we all have that, that click moment. I call it going down the rabbit hole. Once you go down the hop rabbit hole, there's no coming back. <laughs> right? Once you're exposed, there's no coming back. Right? You go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And deeper. You just want to know more. And yeah. that passion that comes along with that, 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 that curiosity that comes along with that, and then it becomes infectious and you spread that throughout an organization. It's just an amazing journey. Uh, I'm very thankful to have got to experience it when I did. I found myself at the, basically, at, I would say at the end of my safety career. And what I mean by that is I've gotten to the point where I was really tired of how we were treating people. Hmm. And I'd gotten to the point to where I decided that I can no longer be a part of treating people like this. <laughs> yeah. I will, I will, I will gladly go down the street and work at McDonald's. Gladly, <laughs> gladly before I do this for another day. <laughs> and one of my friends that I worked with at the time, I came back and I found a copy of Sidney Decker's Safety Differently sitting in my seat. Because this was a lot of the language. We were already speaking this. We were already talking about this stuff. But discovering that Sid's work and discovering eventually lead. I found Sid before I found Todd. And then finding Todd's work and kind of connecting those dots from the stuff that we were already doing and trying to do over time to then a body of knowledge that a lot of folks at that time, if you were in the know, you knew. But a lot of folks didn't. We were just out there right. trying to do good work and trying to move this in a better direction. It just gave us that that whole language, right? It gave us that, oh, this has a name. The things that we're thinking, the closed-door conversations that we're having as professionals on the site, the ones that we're not allowed to have but we're having anyways where we close doors and say, hey, listen, I don't think all of this. We're not crazy. There are other people that think <laughs> the same way we do. <laughs> Which leads me into my next line of thought here. Um, you're passionate about it. I know you're passionate about it because of the work that you do around it. I'm passionate about it, but it's this community, the community of human and organizational performance, the community of doing safety differently. You do the calls. So tell me more about the calls because I've been loving the calls. I've been swooning over the calls. I think they're amazing. I try to share them I, every time that I get a chance to share them. I try to be a part of them anytime that the stars align and I can be a part of them. But tell me how you got to the point of doing the calls and then anything else you want to share about the calls, just just what that looks well, you, like for you. You know, it 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 just dawned on, and I, I, I probably missed the boat because I started this right after COVID. You know, mm -hmm. when everybody was already going back to work, I should have done it during COVID when we were all stuck in our basements, you know, doing everything by Zoom. But it occurred to me that there are a lot of people out there at all different parts of the hop journey that um, it would be cool to talk to and listen to. Yeah. And, you know, it, I, I didn't know of any forum that existed where we could just have a, 
you know, no agenda, just have an informal conversation with people that are interested in hops. So I, yeah. I started this thing I called hop happy hour. I, yeah. I do it at, uh, at six o'clock Eastern time. It's usually on the third Thursday, unless my, my schedule causes me to move it. Um, but we just have an hour and a half where anybody that wants to call in calls in and we talk about whatever we want to talk about. And yeah. it is, it has been so cool. Um, we've got people that have just, you know, are just learning how to spell hop. And we've mm -hmm. got people who have been practitioners for many, many years and everybody, you know, we ask questions, we share stuff, we share experiences. Um, and it's been, I, I've gotten a lot out of it. Yeah. Um, I've, I've got a folder on my, on my computer of things that people have shared on those calls. Um, you know, you, you, you told me about the, um, uh, Carrollton County bus crash, mm -hmm. um, which I think is a, is a perfect story about, um, fixing the system rather than, um, just blaming the, the, the guy who, you know, didn't do what he, what we wanted him to do. Um, mm -hmm. I've gotten, I've gotten a lot of stuff out of that. And I think we've, we've, we've shared a lot of stuff, um, with other people. So it's, uh, it's been really cool for me. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously I'm, I'm in a consulting business. This is what I do for a living. And, um, I, I've not, we've, we've kept it very non-commercial. Nobody's out there selling, trying to sell their services. We're just mm -hmm. sharing stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, so it's really cool. Um, I, I, the only place I post it right now is I post it on LinkedIn and I posted, I've started posting it on, um, oh, now I'm having a brain cramp. I can't remember the, uh, the safety exchange, mm. um, that, uh, David Provan started. Yep. So I, I posted on there as it's, it's a zoom call. Anybody that wants to can call in and, and that's really what we're trying to develop is, um, you know, those connections so that, um, yeah. If uh, hey, I remember somebody on that call was talking about something that was cool. I know how to get a hold of that guy. I know what yeah. he looks like. I know where he lives. I know how to get a hold of him, and I can send him a message and say, "Hey, tell me more about this." Yeah. So it's been it's been really good. I love it. I've, it's been one of the coolest things in this community that I know that I've got to participate in a little bit. You know, there was some of that. We still, you know, there were some of those little things where we would do kind of virtual stuff here and there. You know, as you mentioned during the pandemic, like everybody was kind of doing a little bit of a virtual something. So I don't think you missed the boat at all. I think you hit the timing just right. At least that's <laughs> that's from my perspective is because you you kind of allowed a lot of that kind of fluff that happened. And some of it was fluff. Some of that yeah. fluff that happened during the pandemic where we're all just like, we're all bored. We're all lonely. How do we get together? We did a couple of those where we just did, uh, we did cigars with safety professionals a couple of times during the <laughs> pandemic. I'm not a huge cigar smoker. And I, I say that when I look over here and there's a, floor humidor sitting over here. And I enjoy collecting them. I mostly enjoy collecting them, smoking them occasionally. <laughs> but we would do something similar where not hop though. We didn't really do that. It was just, it was just, we're all lonely. Let's just hang out and talk. We, we won't even talk about safety stuff. We'll just hang out with each yeah. other where you get a nice, uh, you know, a nice little Buffalo trace and a cigar out of, you know, and you hang out. Half the people are calling from their phone, smoking cigars in their garage, <laughs> you know, or sitting outside on their back porch. Um, but we kind of, we stopped that because, you know, it was just mostly for that. So right. now to see that the way that you've done this and I don't know what number call you're on, you've been doing it for a minute, 
Um, oh, I think I've probably been doing it about a year and a half now. A year, yeah, I was going to say about a year and a half is what just from my brain, just from what I've seen kind of out there. The fact that it's hot focused and the fact that it's an open invite, the fact that there's no sign up, there's nothing like that. You just go yeah. click on that little link, add it to your calendar. You know, you're you roll the dice on who you're going to get. You, I popped on there and I've seen Rob Fisher on there as we were kind of talking about the amazing Rob Fisher. You <laughs> pop on there, you see some of the buddies from uh, from Briz Vegas hanging out down in Brisbane. You get folks from all over the globe. And that has been that has been one of the biggest surprises for me yeah. is the number of people from Australia and New Zealand that have that have they, called in, you come which right I, in? Did, yeah. I did not expect. And it's but, been it's been great. The hop, the hop community, and I'm sure you know this, but I mean, down in Brizzy, down in down in Briz Vegas, Brisbane, Brisbane is like a hotbed of hop <laughs> thought, right? It really is. It's a hotbed yeah. of hop thought, and you've got those amazing folks that pop on the call sometimes, you know, um, from like Jordan and Steve and Josh and all those kind of names that I know you're familiar with from the call. Yeah, and they just pop on there, and it's just cool. And the last part of that, that I'm again, I'm swooning a bit here, Steve, because I love the call. I, <laughs> I, I, I want people to attend because it is so cool. One of my most favorite things about it is there's no freaking agenda. Yeah, I love it. I, I thought about that early on. Do I want to pick a topic for each call? And I and I didn't because um, I just. I want people to be able to talk about whatever we want to talk about. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's that's one of the things I, I really like. There's there's no – it's not really structured. You have a beginning time and an end time, and sometimes it ends a little early. Sometimes it goes a little late. Yep. Right? <laughs> Probably more late than early, I bet. <laughs> but I love it because people just talk about what's on their mind, what they're thinking, stuff they've read, stuff they're working on, problems they're having, you know, seeking input. Yeah, people can just talk about whatever they want to. We get so obsessed in our world, especially I deal with corp with corporations. You deal with corporations' agendas are like the thing. We love them, yeah, right? because we can't imagine wasting a second in a meeting, right? We can't imagine, <laughs> right? So the fact that it's a meeting where you just get to be with other people, that bit of fellowship, that conversation, just open, whatever you want to talk about. I think that's the power in it to me. That's that's the part, personally speaking, that's the part that I enjoy because you never know. I might pop on there and it could be somebody just talking about what they have for lunch that day and then boom, right into a hop conversation. Yeah. <laughs> right. <It's>, yep. <laughs> love I, I, I like the lack of structure. I like that. Uh, you know, it, it, I, it's been, it's been valuable to me every time without having to set an agenda. So why yeah. change that? Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't, you know, again, I think the, the model you've got, it's working. People love it. And so folks out there listening, you know, if it's, it's a great place to ask questions for me, as you said, what I love about it and I, I've any interaction that I, that I seem to have, you know, whether it's hanging out on your hop call or going out and I'm sure you experience this going out and spending time with clients and doing stuff. I always walk away learning more, usually more than I've taught them, you know, which is amazing. Right. So that call is a perfect example of that. Any level, whether you're right at the beginning of your journey or this is the first time you ever heard about hop. Yeah. And you're listening like, what are these two lunatics talking about? <laughs> if, if you go hang out on that call, you're going to get some of the best practitioners in the world. You're going to get some of the folks that are out there doing this, have done this, worked with this, folks that are actively working to make these changes happen in their organizations. You know, I, I pick on Josh Bryan a lot and Mitchell Services, but they're a really good example of somebody that pops on that call sometimes that have been there, done that, yeah, done, knows where the pitfalls are at. <laughs> 
<laughs> knows what works well, usually knows what works doesn't, will give you some great ideas. And if you got questions, it's a great place to ask them. And and Josh has been one of the 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 most generous people of sharing stuff. Mm. Um, somebody will ask about, you know, anybody got a good way to to uh, share the, uh, communicate an incident. Josh said, yeah, I got one for you. And he'll drop it in the chat. And yeah. <laughs> he's been, he's been really, really good about that. Yeah. I love it, man. So anybody, anybody out there, if you just go to Steve's LinkedIn, I would say probably be the easiest way to find it, huh? If you, you can find that. I, I think if you just open LinkedIn and type in hop happy hour in the search bar, I think okay. it'll take you to it. There you go. You just type it in. But I will encourage anybody out there listening that you should be following Steve, too. So if you're following Steve, you will see any of those posts that come out because he you do a good job of getting those things out there. And again, I try to share them anytime that I come across them. I try to share them as much as I can as well, because it's such a powerful thing in this community, that call in particular. I just love it. I can't say enough positive things about it. Cool. So. When you're talking hop, and this will be for our folks out there that are kind of maybe on their journey, maybe early on in their journey, top of mind, where are a few areas that people tend to get it wrong right out of the gate? Because a lot of the conversation I've been having on the pod is this, you're going to mess it up. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. You're, go you're going to mess it up, right? You're Because uh, I, I come across a lot of organizations, and you, I'm sure, sure, sure you do as well, that are so fearful of taking the first steps because they're afraid of executing it without perfection. Yes. Right. They're afraid of, um, well, if I mess this up right out of the gate, I'm, we, they, they get crippled by their desire for perfection that they never start. It takes them a few years just to build up the courage to go, okay, I'm going to fall flat on my face. I'm going to take five steps forward, 10 steps back sometimes. Yep. We're going to try to work on our responses to failure, but every now and again, we're going to, we're going to devolve into reacting and panicking. Like those things are going to happen. Right. That's that's part of this. Right? That's how you get where you want to go. You learn your way towards doing things a bit better. Right. But if we can give them a couple ideas on some of the more common stumbling blocks, <laughs> I've been trying to kind of go down that path of here are the few things. So from your perspective, the stuff that you see, the your experiences, uh, your wealth of experience with this, what are some things that pop to mind right out of the gate of places where we tend to stumble? I think you said one of the most important things is that don't let the search for perfection stop you from making progress mm -hmm. um, uh, because you can, you know, you can um, do that, get in that analysis paralysis and try to think about all the pitfalls, all the potential pitfalls. What if this, what if that man, just try something and do it and see what happens. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most common things I see is people that are new to hop that are that are traditional safety people or even traditional operations people um they try to approach it the same way they did other safety initiatives they focus on what do the workers need to do differently because they're the they're the ones that get hurt so what do we need them to do differently and i think we have to take a step back and think about hop as a collection of values and beliefs um that are then we demonstrate through our behaviors, through our actions, the behaviors, the things we say, the things we do. Yeah. Uh, so it, it it's hugely important. First step in HOP is to get senior operational leaders to understand what HOP is yeah. and understand, you know, I, the, the way I sum it up is I want 
the you know whatever part of the company we're gonna we're gonna focus on for hop if it's the whole company if it's a a, a branch a plant i want that the senior operational leader over that part to be able to say this is what hop is this is why we're doing this this is what i'm going to do differently and this is what i would like you to do differently mm. um because if we if we don't look at hop as a set of values and belief if we don't look at those five principles as the set of you know founding first principles that underpin everything we do moving forward then it's just another set of tools that we're going to throw at the workers and right, they're going right. to go through the motions and you know it, it, it's not going to do anything for us i think that's one of the biggest pitfalls that I've found. And, um, I, you know, Conklin told me one time for every hour you spend training workers, you probably need to spend four hours training leaders. And I, I think, I think it's <laughs> at least, it. at least that, um, a couple well, of the organizations I work with, what I've asked them for is eight hours. If I go into a plant, what I've asked for is eight hours with the plant lead team. Mm -hmm. And, um, probably a 45 minute awareness training that we give to the workers. Absolutely. Just, yeah. Hey, you're going to hear us talking about this. This is what it is. This is what we're committing to do. Hold us to it. Make sure we're doing it. Well, I um, love that. So I've, I've seen that to your point, exactly. Be very successful. You're it's so I, I love that point because I see that time and time again. And we mentioned this with traditional HP. You, and I picked, I pick on my utility friends cause they were really good at this of taking the tools, abandoning the principles yeah, and yeah. I get be best of intentions, best of intentions, but we got it a little backwards, right? the the better assumptions the better beliefs the principles lead to the emergence of the tools not the other way around right so we spend a lot of time there so to, i'm with you we we that's such a good point for folks out there to recognize first off that hop's not a program right it's not a program to manage it's that fundamental shift in beliefs assumptions yeah. those kind of key things and we've got to do it pretty much the opposite of the way we've tried to do more traditional safety things it goes the other direction Right, we've we've tried to do any organization I've I've been around that's tried to do hop down to their front line. I mean, if I go teach front line folks hop, and I think this will resonate with you because you probably have have, have heard the same statement from them, and the statement is if if I teach them hop principles, their immediate reaction is, well, duh, I've been telling you this yeah. for years. <laughs> I've been telling, go tell them that. But if I tell them what happened, they're going to write me up. So I'm not going to tell them. I've been telling you this for years. You need to go talk to them. And they're right. Yeah. They're absolutely yeah. right. They so it, it's that it's that other direction. Instead of trying to do hop down through your organization, it really is the the other direction. So I'm, I'm with you. I love that kind of piece of that 45-minute organizations I've seen that have executed highly, highly successfully with this. They're not really teaching hop to their frontline folks. No, they're demonstrating it. They're demonstrating. They're, yeah. that, that session, they're using it more as here's our commitment to you. Yeah. And yeah. I've seen them take that. And even in their normal, because every company has a health and safety policy, you know, that first procedure in the massive book of procedures. And it usually, traditionally speaking, has been this is what you must do for us. Right. And they've even gone to the point of shifting that of saying, no, here's our promise to you. Yeah. As an organization, this isn't what you do for us. This is what we're promising to you. We're going to create an environment where honesty is possible. We're not going to tar and feather you for failures and mistakes. We want to learn from you, not judge you. Those kind of basic things. And they've ingrained that. They've, they've taken yeah. that idea of we're starting here. We're shifting the beliefs of the organization. And we're going to demonstrate that to the folks that actually do the work. There's a really, really cool 
example of that type of leadership that had nothing to do with with hop or safety. Um, if you 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 might have heard about it, um, there was a a Costco store that voted to unionize. I've seen that. I read that just the other and day. The CEO sent a letter out to the whole organization. It says this is a leadership failure. It's not their problem that they wanted to organize. It's our problem. Yeah. We put them in a position where they felt they needed to organize yeah. in order to be heard. We need to fix that. This yeah. is a leadership problem. And, I, and that's exactly it. right. And I loved the transparency of it, the realness of it. Yeah. yeah when I read that letter, that's it's it was that if if folks out there haven't seen that, you can go Google it and find it. It's a it's a a business outcome that I'm certain that Costco probably didn't desire. Right. If just right. from from understanding their business a bit, that's something that I'm certain that they didn't necessarily desire. But the response to it, because it's, again, it's probably a bit of an unintended surprise for them. They're going, what? Right. But to then take the the line of thinking of we created an environment where these folks felt like they needed a third party to be able to communicate with us, that they need to be protected from us. But that resonates. The- Huge and that's the same thing response. we're trying to to drive through hop. It, it it's it's not why didn't they tell us about that? The question is, how did we create a culture where they're afraid to tell yeah. us about that? Yeah. Right. Um, why did they take that? Why did they when you I, I a, a lot of times when I do training, I I start off by showing a picture, one of those, one of those ones you get off the internet of people doing crazy stuff at work. Mm-hmm. And I I I the question is not why is he doing that? The question is, how did I put a worker in a position where they felt they needed to do that in order to get their job done? I've I've failed. And that's an organizational failure. So that that made the most sense in that moment. Right. Yeah. To where it's going. Well, and there's so much to unpack there. Right. I I love those. I love the inclusion of stuff like that, especially in workshops and some of those conversations. You know, I share a bunch, especially around our response to when things and capacity, and one of my favorite ones around that is the is the bollard pictures, right? Where you see the bollard around something that's got paint all over it, you know, or the trucks have bumped into it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the first question is always success or failure, right? And again, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just a, a, a hillbilly living in the desert here. But my thought is, is that we put bollards around important crap so we don't, so we hit the bollard and not the important crap. It's like guardrails <laughs> on the highway. Would you rather hit the guardrail or go yeah. off the cliff? Don't get me wrong. Nobody wants a dinged bumper, but when I see a little bit of paint on a, I, I, I don't know the install price of a bollard right now. I used to, cause I used to install a bunch of them in some of the power plants I worked in, <laughs> but I don't know what it costs, but I promise you it's a lot less expensive than whatever's sitting behind whatever's it. behind it yeah <laughs> so when when someone bumps backs into a bollard success or failure a lot of times in that more traditional sense we go failure they should never hit it to begin with but in this kind of view that we take in this more hop centric view well it might have been more of a failure if we didn't have a bollard but we put it there because we assumed that people were going to try to back into the really important crap behind it and guess what they did they backed into the bollard exactly how we planned yep <laughs> So instead of melting down, panicking, freaking out, right? I just uh, I did an episode with Sidney Decker way back when, and I just redid some thoughts on it that uh, come out on the podcast not that long ago. But I love his his response to leadership or managerial reaction response to to unintended operational surprises, to stuff that's almost always. Uh, challenges our perspectives about the organization or our assumptions about the organization. That's almost always a bit surprising. 
And a lot mm-hmm. of times somewhat disappointing, right? It's a disappointing outcome for us. And a lot of times the way that we've reacted in, in his words is we pee ourselves. Yeah. Right? I, I love the way that he puts that. We, we pee ourselves. It's pee your pants management, right? Where we freak out and it feels really good. We got to go, got to go, got to do something, got to do something. I pee myself. But then at the end of the day, when I do that, when somebody backs into that bollard, when we find that worker in that situation, instead of saying, how did it make sense to get here? How did we put them in that position? When we view the backing into that bollard as a failure instead of a success, and we freak out and we pee ourselves, the only person that ends up looking like an ass is the person that it peed themselves. Us. Yeah, the guy with the wet pants. <laughs> yep. All right. I, I, I found that one, one, one more thing. I found yeah, this, no, keep um, going. this quote that I love. I, somebody asked me to do a presentation about uh, – culture which is a you know a tricky thing that kind of gets thrown around all kinds of different crazy ways yeah um so i started doing some some google searches on defining culture and i found and and you can imagine there's a whole bunch of really convoluted descriptions of it out there i found one i really like by this he's a retired marine corps general named george flynn mm-hmm. he said culture is simply the sum of your values plus your behaviors. Yeah. It's not enough to say we value worker safety if our behavior doesn't reflect that. Yeah. So it's not enough to say that error is normal and then scream at people when they make errors. Yeah. Right. Our error behavior is normal, has to reflect those values. Right. And and I think yeah. that is that that's such a powerful thing for people to get is um, this is what we're trying to do. We're not trying to force the workers to do something different. We want our behaviors to reflect those values and in doing so create this culture where we're, we're, we're dead focused on what can we learn from this? How can we improve? How can we get better, more resilient, more reliable? Yeah. You know, it, it ties right back in. I, I have this belief that a lot of times we try to break apart our work worlds and our normal worlds. And what I mean by that is we think that once you go into this working environment, that things are super different and special and, and people are not, yeah. you know, that people are infallible, that bad things can happen, that we have ultimate control over everything. It's a, it's a, it's a nice fairy tale that we tell ourselves as organizations, right? That no, no, the, that's the world out there. The same worldly rules that apply to the natural world do not apply to us in the work <laughs> world, right? And so I, I tell that story a lot of times in, the, in around the communication kind of approaches that we take in kind of the, obviously the ways that we treat people, the way that, the way that we have conversations, the questions that we ask, the stuff that works outside in the normal world works in our work worlds too, because we're just people. The environment's different, but we're just people. So when we operate under that idea that, well, the rest of the world's imperfect, but the organization can be perfect. I think we set ourselves up for failure right out of the gate because there's nothing in humanity that has ever been perfect or ever will (laughs) be perfect. Right. Yep. So if we're operating under the assumption of imperfection, that back to our points around the principles, that failure is 100% going to occur. Error is normal. Yep. Let's think about the things that we can actually influence. Let's think about the things that we can actually put our hands on and tweak context, environment, all those so different things, our ability to fail more gracefully around our areas of critical risk. Right. Yeah. Those kind of key things. Let's think about what we can do. Right. Instead of obsessing about this perfect world that we think we can craft, it's, we're never going to get there and we're going to get frustrated. And we're going to lash out and beat people and blame people when we don't. 
Yeah, I, th- I, I, I still like to, to ask people those questions like, um, hey, what, what could happen today that could cause you to be seriously injured or killed? If you knew with 100% certainty it was going to happen to you today, yeah, what controls you need to have in place to protect you? Yeah. And is that enough? I love it. That, That's the, the, those key questions. It's that, that, that constant sense of, of, you know, chronic unease that, you know, we, where, where's the next failure going to occur? Yeah. Um, and, and are we ready to protect the worker when it does? I think those are amazing. You know, I, I'd spent some time with an organization doing a bunch of learning teams around their pre-job briefing process and their pre-job brief, they were so, they were just couldn't understand why people didn't use their pre-job brief process. So I just don't understand. It's perfect. Right from from safety folks perspective, from leadership perspective, up up right. I think mid level leaders and above. Yep. It was it was it was the form. Like it was awesome. Like it it was awesome to them because it met all the kind of corporate tick boxes of a good program. We could count them, and we could count how many of them were used properly. Air quotes here. That's a word that we toss around a lot in in our world. Right, properly. We could look at if that pre-job brief was performed properly based off, you know, the stuff they scribble on form. That's it. Post-event, right? We could ask them for it. We could go out and spend time with them. We could see their forms, right? And then where I'm going with this is that their form was insane. And what I mean by that is I counted the boxes. It was like 75-ish check boxes on this form. Yeah. And then some like yeah. creative, you know how we do, some creative writing, like, tell me how you feel about this work. <laughs> Does it bring you joy? You know, <laughs> kind of, you know, the weird stuff. And then HR had thrown some stuff on it. And then, you know, in this world, uh, this will give away the world that I'm speaking about, but critical infrastructure protection kind of stuff was thrown in here too. And then environmental had their own little box. So it was about yeah. four or five pages of form that you had to do for every everything forever and always, even if it was you working by yourself. So you working with you, you had to do one with you and keep it with you. <laughs> someone asked you for it, right? It was, it was one of those kind of deals and w- where I'm going. I promise I've, I've got, I've, I've got a direction with this story other than just ranting about this insane pre-job brief process, which I call it insane, but it's pretty normal. That's a pretty normal yes. pre-job brief process yes. that we tend to come across. But what, what we found was that when you spent time with those nearest to the work, when you ask them what they were really talking about, put the form aside. I, I know what's going on with the form. They were they were master counterfeiters, and rightfully so. Uh-huh. They, they had perfect copies pre-filled out. Just the supervisor put a date on it, shoved it in the desk. We went and had the real conversation. So what I got curious about was the real conversation. Yeah. Yeah, the form sucks. I'm with you guys. Tell me what you're actually talking about. And you know what's funny? The things that they were talking about is exactly what you just said. Yeah. How what do we not die? What could kill us? Yeah. What protects us? Because yep. and, and they said, look, the form talks about gloves and steel-toed boots and hard hats. And uh, one of the quotes that stands out to me, this guy sitting in the corner. And, you know, the guy in the corner with the sunglasses on the hard hat, you know, it's always something important to say when he says it. He says, bro, I sleep in my PPE. You think I need to know to put on my steel-toed boots before I go to work? Get the heck <laughs> out of here. We don't talk about that crap. That's all crap we already know. <laughs> So, and their whole point was, is we don't talk about that stuff. We know that stuff. We live and breathe that every single day. Yeah. If we're using something like PPEs was a really good example. If we're using something weird or different, we talk about that. But I'm not talking about gloves. Yeah. The stuff that I'm talking about, the stuff that they're talking about was exactly what you said. They didn't quite put it this way, but what they were saying was, what's the stuff that can kill me? And how do I make sure I don't die? That, are, we, are those controls enough? <laughs> 
we went through that. We went through that evolution at Alcoa, where you know the pre-test brief was everybody. Everybody wanted their own part of it, and we wanted yeah. it to serve a whole bunch of different masters and mm-hmm. and it become a, a legal form. <laughs> and what we what we evolved to was one hundred percent focused on critical risks. Mm-hmm. What are the things that kill people in this plant? What are the critical controls? Uh, you know, at what point are those critical? You know, what's the critical steps in the process? So where those critical controls become most important yeah. and um, what could go wrong? What's the worst thing yeah. that could happen to the, to the controls we've identified? Or are they going to protect me when it does? Yeah. I love it. I love it. All right. Rapid fire questions. Ready? Uh-oh. We, I've kept you here far too long and I apologize, but the conversation has been amazing. Been good. It's been awesome to get to finally do this. I don't know why we haven't done it sooner, I don't, but you're busy. I'm busy. We're all over the place, but we finally made it happen. So I'm excited for people to hear this one. This is a good one, but rapid fire questions, completely not right. hop, not hop safety work related. You ready? Okay. Talking or texting? Text. I'm an I, te- <laughs> I like text too. I'm a texter. <laughs> My phone rings. I go, Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> How do you drink your coffee? Black. I'm with you. I'm with you all the way. Man, we're 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 mirroring each other here right now, Steve. <laughs> Ready? Favorite holiday? Oh, uh, Thanksgiving. God, three for three. You sure we're not the same person? It's, like my, it's my weird... wife's favorite holiday, and she is she has made it my favorite holiday. <laughs> all right. Superpowers, ready? Invisibility or super strength? Ooh, invisibility. Ooh, I like it. Favorite song? Oh, favorite song. That one I got to think about because I have very eclectic tastes in music. Um, <laughs> probably go with one of my old standbys like uh, Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd. Ooh, that's a good one, man. I like it. I'm with you. So my musical taste goes all over the map. If uh, if people think I'm crazy now, if they saw my Spotify playlist. I I tell people if you look at my if you look at my iTunes, you'll see everything from ACDC to um, Zach Brown Band yeah, and everything same, in between. Same here. All right. <laughs> Ask for permission or beg for forgiveness. Forgiveness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dog person, cat person. Dog. Yeah. Dog person. Cool. Okay. So I don't know if you journal any, but I'm a notorious note taker. I'd never go back and read them. It's just a nervous tick of mine, I think. But if you're journaling, are you doing it on a computer or are you doing it on old school in the notebook? iPad. iPad, even better. The in-between answer. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I, I iPad like it. with the with the Apple pencil. So <laughs> I like to, I like to write it. I like the 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 process of of writing it down. I think it helps me remember stuff better. Love it. Well very cool man. So last but not least, uh I'm because uh, I'm I'm gonna get this out before then. You have an upcoming hop public course going on, right? Yeah. So how do people, how, you want to plug that a little bit so people know that it's going on? If you check my, if you check my LinkedIn page and my name is Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Scott, um, you'll see it on, uh, as an event. It's a, um, it's an open course, two days. It's February 6th and 7th in Herndon, Virginia, which is right next to Dulles Airport. Yep. And we are going to cover all the stuff we've talked about related to hop, you know, introductory, what is hop? Um, and, and we do this with, with small group activities, some hands-on stuff, a bunch of case studies, you know, some lecture, traditional lecture and PowerPoint, um, lots of discussion. 
Um, we'll talk about, you know, the, the, the really traditional hop stuff, the, the traditional HP error reduction, you know, error mitigation stuff, um, intro to critical risk management, new view of safety. Day two is all about operational learning. So we'll talk about operational learning broadly, focus in on learning teams. What is a learning team? What is it? How does it run? What's a, when to use it, when not to use it. And then the second half of the day, we just run a, a simulated learning team. So um, I give some people some roles to play at, on, at the end of day one, and they come in on day two, ready to play those roles. And we we kind of take it where it goes and see how it, how it works out. Um, so, yeah, that's what we got going. So they just send you a, they just send you an email and they can get they signed can up. Check me out on LinkedIn or send me an email. My email is steve at hopimprovement.com. You can Got send me an email it. and I'll get you signed up. What an opportunity too. I I love seeing these uh especially seeing these things pop up where they're open, right? Where people can just sign up, they can come learn this stuff. I know probably similar to your experience with this stuff. When you when I I know when I first started in this place, there wasn't really many places you could go learn other than getting a book, sitting down and just yeah. doing your own research, digging through, which is fun and you should do that. But to have the opportunity, right, to just come sign up for a course and from, I'll tell you, this will be a good one. This is this is the one, if you're, if you're looking for one, this is the one to sign up for. And not only that, but to be right outside of Dulles, Dullis is an easy, easy airport. In my, in my personal opinion, I like Dulles Airport. Get in and out. Herndon's a pretty nice little area. Come hang out. And uh, yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, it's the first time I've done this, so um, um, you know, I'm hoping it goes over well. And and yeah. uh, like like you said, I'm I, I'm getting the same trap you get into. I'm sure is where I'm always working for a client. Yep. Um. So I've got um. I, I had a bunch of people ask me, did they ever offer training to the public? And so we're gonna try it and see how it goes. Love it, love it. So not one to miss out on. Um, this is one that I'm certain I'm, I'm probably putting words in your mouth here, Steve, but I'm guessing that any any level of hop maturity, wherever you're at yes, on your journey, wherever you're you, at, whether this is the first one or you've been doing this for years, I love setting in some of these classes, man. I go and hang out at some of these conferences every now and again, and I'm not a conference person, so that tells you a lot. <laughs> I'm not a conference person. I go for the conversations, right? But I'm not the conference person. I don't like, I don't know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to rant a little bit. Some of these conferences get a little stuffy for my taste. I love the people. I love what I love is the in between the sessions. So yeah. I'm the person that'll go to a conference and not sign up for anything and just wait in the hallway until everybody comes out so I can talk to them, <laughs> <laughs> drink coffee with them, <laughs> hang out. So an opportunity to to do that and do that outside of conference setting with Steve, it's huge. It's huge. So I, I hope to see you do many more of these because I think it's what we need. It's something I've been ranting about lately. Is uh, back to your point. We work a lot with clients. We spend a lot of time internal to our community, and I don't even want to guess a percentage, but very much of the world is unaware of hop still. Yeah, yeah. I'm, and, I'm, you know, again, this is the world you and I live in, so we take mm -hmm. we sometimes take it for granted that yeah, yeah, this is this is out there. Everybody's heard about it, and it's not. There, yeah. the you know, the traditional safety management is still extremely prevalent. Um, very. So, you know, any chance we have to, any chance I have to get, get in front of people and talk about uh, hop and a, you know, a different way of looking at things, a different way of, yeah. of viewing it is, is, um, uh, I love it. It's energizing just, for me. It, it is. I, and I just think about those folks out there, you know, when you first started on the journey, we talked about the click moment that kind of, and then that rabbit hole. Yeah. You know, I think about all those folks in industries, well beyond some of the industries that we've served, even, you know, that those folks, 
that are that take those ideas and carry those back to their organizations and then expand upon all the work. Cause that's so much of what we're doing, right? We're taking ideas and we're expanding and we're growing and we're practicing them. Those folks carrying those, those better beliefs, better assumptions, those tools back to their organization and then bringing about massive change is amazing. Yep. And it could, it could, if you're listening, if that's, if that sounds like you, it could start right here with this session with Steve, <laughs> you could, you could pick up and, those and ideas it, and carry them right back. You know, we we also tend to think about this as something related to safety because we we always it, yeah. the way I like to say it is safety is usually the first place we practice hop. Yep. Um, but like I said, I I I, I was in a, a continuous improvement role when I first got exposed to it, and yeah. and with a with a strong operational background, and it just you know it just really clicked with me. So whatever role you're in, yeah, um, I think there's something here for you because this again, it's not a safety initiative. It's a it's a set of values and beliefs. Yeah. It's a very different way of looking at work and the workers and how things happen. And it it, it just uh useful wherever you're at. Yeah. And I, that's one thing that I find constantly and the more and more that I do this because I'm I'll see if this resonates with you. But even now, because I still spend my time, as I'm sure you do, I facilitate a bunch of learning teams for folks, facilitate slash coach learning teams with some clients, you know, folks that are just starting on their journey and helping yep. them kind of coaching the coaching coaches, you know, as they kind of mature along yep. that path. And there's a couple of things that really stand out to me there is that the more and more that I do that, the less and less I tend to be doing learning teams on safety stuff. Yeah. Right? yeah. I would say less than half of the learning teams that I'm personally involved in are safety air quotes here, safety learning teams. Now there's another side to this though, is that the more and more that I do this and the more, the more and more that I see organizations do this, either friends that work in the organizations or clients that I work with, the more and more we learn, the less and less we seem to become obsessed with calling stuff, safety, quality, environmental. Yeah. Yeah, the more and just, more we start calling it work. Yeah. <laughs> the more and more we start calling it work, right? Because I've yet to do a learning team where maybe it started in the safety space, but it never stays in the safety space. Yeah, for sure yeah. we might we might improve something in the safety world, but we're thinking quality and efficiency and environmental, and it, it's 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 just work. So to to exactly to your point is the more that I think we sometimes shoot ourselves in the foot with hop at least internal to organizations where we go, no, this is a safety thing. And I agree with you. I think it's yeah. safety is often the catalyst, but if you stop yes. at safety, you're minimizing your investment. Right. Right. And I don't know how you can, because I've sat down with it folks. I've sit down with fun. If you sit down with financial folks and you start talking about critical controls, critical risk controls, they're like, oh, you're speaking my language now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You yep. start sitting down with IT folks about end user experience and you start talking about tri-storming and micro experiment. They go, okay, you're talking my language now, right? It but quickly it, tends to spread once you start having those conversations. I, I, I always point out to people, if you look at the, you know, the, the, the original, I, and I still use those original five principles yep. of human and organizational performance. There's nothing in there that's focused on safety. There's nothing right, in nothing. there that's about safety. Um, everything, every word of those five principles, you can apply to everything we do. Everything. And you should, right? Yeah. You should yeah. as you go down that path maturity. Well, Steve, I, 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 go ahead. I told someone, I told someone, someone asked me say uh, a while back, it was a, a client I was, I was wrapping up with and they said, um, okay, you've been doing this a long time. What does, what does success look like? And I said, you know, for you sitting here as a plant manager, for you sitting here, what I what I think success looks like is when you have those five principles on a big poster up on the wall in this conference room 
And every decision you make in this conference room as a lead team, you're looking at those five principles and you're asking a question, are we, are we demonstrating those yeah. five principles through what we're about to do? Yeah. I love it. And that's, that's such a powerful way to think about it because I, I tend to, I tend to coach people in the same direction. I view many things in our work world as pretty benign. And what I mean by that is that I don't know that things are good or evil just on their face value. Yeah. You know, so much of that is in application and approach. But what I, where I'm going with this is I always encourage folks that if you're, if you're using those principles as your test, yeah, if that's the lens through which you're viewing, when you're saying, should we do this? If you're going back to those principles, especially when those decisions are kind of tough, especially yep. when it doesn't seem like there's any right answers, if you're going back to that, it's hard to get it wrong. Yeah. And it's hard to get it wrong. You know, if you're looking at that program and that program is just, just administrative burden and stifle full of, just full of blame and shame and it's doing crap to people. And it's kind of that, all that stuff that we know kind of works counter to these better beliefs and assumptions. You know, if you're looking at those and you're going, nah, it doesn't line up. We're not going to do that. You find yourself in a, with a pretty good decision-making model too. Yeah. Right now, it's a little deeper than that. Yeah, of course, you got to have some deeper conversations. But if you start there, it's real hard yes. to get it wrong. Are you going to get it wrong? 100% chance. Promise. Yep. <laughs> but it makes but your life then, a whole lot easier. <laughs> but then those five principles also come in useful to where you didn't respond well or you ask somebody yep. to do something that you shouldn't have and, and exactly. go, you know, go reflect on that. Hey, how could I have done that better? Look, you know, if, if, if I really want to demonstrate that those are my values, what could I have done differently? What could yep. I have done better? What could I have done better? And when we do have that misstep overreaction, because leaders are people too. I yeah. keep saying this, <laughs> we forget, right? Because there's a certain point in the journey. It seems like it's a real back to common stumbling points, right? It's a really common step in this journey. There's a couple of things that happens. A lot of organizations, we get really good at not blaming the sharp end, but then we want to transfer blame up through the organization. Somewhere else, yeah. We, yeah. It's not that we've gotten good at not blaming. We've just gotten good at not blaming those closest to the work. <laughs> So I keep feeling the need to say this. So if you're listening to this, leaders are people too. Beating, blaming, tarring, and feathering them doesn't change the outcome doesn't either. Doesn't fix anything. <laughs> it doesn't fix anything, right? Give them those better beliefs. Give them those better principles. Teach them those tools. And they're going to mess it up because I've messed yep. it up. Yep. I've messed it up a ton of times. And anybody that's been on this journey has messed it up a ton of times. But where, I, where I'm pulling this back into is, as you said, you can look back on that and you can reflect you can learn, you can think about how we can do that a little bit differently in the future. And if you're that leader out there and you do have that misstep, don't be afraid of admitting it. Yeah. It's such a powerful opportunity that people crap the bed on. Every time leaders, I'm telling you leaders out there that are listening, there's, there's power. There's power in being vulnerable. Yeah. And when you step out there and you say, I, hey, I screwed up. I, I reacted done. when I should have responded. Yeah. Right. Yep. I should have paused and I apologize. I didn't mean that. Can we reset? <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> Here's what I'm committing to you to doing different next time. Let's reel this back in. I shouldn't have panicked. It was, yep. I was emotional. I freaked out. It was some wild information. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> yeah. You, you earn a lot of street cred with that move, but you yes, gotta you mean do. it. You gotta mean it. You don't yep. mean that people see through your crap real fast. <laughs> you gotta mean it and they'll respect you more for misstepping and recovering. Right. Then misstepping and going, oh, I hope nobody noticed. <laughs> well, cool, Steve. I've got to tell you, thank you. Thank you for coming on and thank you. Hey, for thanks me. for doing it. I, I enjoyed it. 
Great, awesome conversation. Um, you've, you've given out your email for the class. People can get a hold of you there for other stuff as well. Consulting, I'm assuming. Yep. Any of that stuff people want to do internal to their organizations. You're on LinkedIn as well. You've got the call going on. So make sure that you're following Steve on LinkedIn. Uh, again, send him a note. I'm sure they can get a hold of you through direct message on LinkedIn too, or your email yep. if they want to work with you, if they've got some stuff going on that you can help them with. Um, hop consulting, learning teams, all the above, right? All the stuff that that yep. we've been kind of chatting about. Uh, now I leave this for every episode, but uh, any final words, Steve, any last words, <laughs> anything that you want to share with folks out there, stuff that you're thinking at the moment, pro tips, any, just anything, anything that you want to share with folks out there that might be listening before we wrap this shindig up. I, I have become more and more a fan of Ted Lasso's four words mm. to be a good leader. Be curious, not judgmental. Love it. I think if you just do that as a leader, stay curious, not judgmental, you're you're 90% of the way there. Yeah. Love it. Thanks for listening, everybody. We greatly appreciate all of your support of the Hot Nerd Podcast, the Hot Nerd LLC. If you need a little bit of help of bringing human and organizational performance to life, if you would like to take your efforts around learning and improving to the next level, yep, I can help with that. Head over to www.thehotnerd.com or send me an email, thehotnerd at gmail.com. Until next time, bye everybody. Bye.